Uh, when I first started preaching, and I would try to explain to others uh, what kind of book is the Bible, I would describe it like this. I'd say it's, it's like a library. And here's why I'd say that, because this is no ordinary book. In this one book, we actually have a collection of 66 books written by 40 different people, 40 different people coming from three different continents and written over a 1,500-year span of time. And yet the remarkable thing is that every page in this book fits together in perfect harmony. And that's because behind the whole project, there's one mind, one author, who's directing the whole process. That's God himself. Through the pages of this book, God is telling us one main story, how he, God, is seeking a relationship with us and how he's going to rescue us, set us free from our sin so that we can actually enjoy that relationship with him. Now, there's a catch, and you've always got to be aware of this. As you're reading through the Bible, this story about how God wants to share his life with us, this story is told to us in a wide variety of ways. I mean, it comes to us through prof or poetry and prophecy. It comes to us through letters and songs. It comes to us through laws and even genealogy. In fact, there's a book here in the Bible called Proverbs where God shares his wisdom with us in a series of short one- and two-line tweets. And then there are other parts of the Bible where you feel like you're sitting in a movie theater. I mean, actually sitting in a movie theater watching this live-action drama like the book of Revelation or like the book that we're going to talk about today, Zechariah. But though there's just one main story being told, yet that story is always communicated to us in a wide variety of ways, which means if you're going to really capture the meaning, if you're going to understand what God is trying to say to me, you must always remember what kind of setting you're in. You know, you don't study the law the same way you'd watch a play. And you don't listen to a song or read a poem in the same way that you would study a piece of history. So when you're reading through the Bible, you've got to pay attention not only to what God says, you've got to pay attention to how he's saying it to you. Now, that's how I used to describe the Bible. It's, it's like a library. A lot of books all gathered in one place and written in a variety of different genres or literary styles, and yet it's all brought together under one cover, one binding. Because every one of these books is pointing in the same direction. Every one of these books is showing us how to connect with God. Now that's how I used to talk about the Bible. But now the more I think about it, describing the Bible like a library, that just seems kind of cold and mechanical to me. It's not very personal. So I think today, if I were trying to describe the Bible to somebody else, I'd use a different image. Think of the refrigerator door in your kitchen covered with all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, there's notes and messages and mementos. There's family pictures, grocery lists, uh, articles clipped out of the newspaper. There's coupons and emergency phone numbers. And then there's all kinds of artwork that you've received over the years from the grandkids, right? Just a crazy mix of information. In fact, if a, a visitor or a stranger were to pop into your house and take a look at that collage, they'd be confused. I mean, everything on that door just looks chaotic and haphazard. It doesn't make any sense. Hey, is there some kind of string that ties all this stuff together? And of course, you would respond, yes. Because for you and any member of your family, everything on that door makes perfect sense. Everything up there has relevance for you. Every item on that refrigerator door has some kind of connection to somebody who's really special and important to you. Every item on that door has a personal meaning for you. Well, so it is with the Bible. Every bit of this book is personal 
for God. Every piece of information in here is either showing you something about the heart of God or showing you something about the heart of the people he's trying to help. And when you understand it that way, now you've got a much better appreciation for what you're looking at when you open up this book. So today, I want us to look at one of those pictures that comes from the heart of God. It's a picture, it's called the book of Zechariah. Now the book of Zechariah itself is a whole series of pictures, visions, visions that he received from the Lord. And in every one of those visions that God gave to his prophet Zechariah, here is God trying to offer a word of encouragement, a word of hope to his people, because at this particular moment, they are going through some really tough times. Well, this morning, I just want us to look at one of those pictures in the book of Zechariah, the picture that we see in chapter three. You know, there's a graveyard not far from New York City, this small cemetery that has this headstone that just kind of stands out from all the rest. I mean, nothing unusual about the stone itself. It's, it's what's written on it that catches your attention. There's no name. There's no date of birth, no date of death. You know, all the usual information you normally see on a tombstone. No, this memorial only has one word on it, forgiven. I mean, for the person who was buried there, that was the one thing that they wanted you to know about them. The most important thing that could be said about this person when they came to the very end of their life was this. They were forgiven. Now, that's the word I would choose to put above this picture that we're going to see here in Zechariah chapter 3. Forgiven. But in order to appreciate that, you've got to hear the story behind the picture. Meaning, what was really happening at the time that Zechariah first got this vision from God? What was life like there in the city of Jerusalem when Zechariah was first writing these words? Well, number one, we know it's the year 520 B.C. And we know that because both Zechariah and Haggai, his fellow prophet, they're, they're two friends and they're ministering together at the same time. One guy's old, the other guy's young. Haggai's the older guy, Zechariah's the younger guy. They're both sharing together in this ministry. And both of them, in each of their books, they give us some very specific dates. And both of them tell us that when they first began preaching to the nation of Israel, it was the year 520 B.C. And the reason why that's important is this. If you had been there at that moment, if you were standing there in the, in the city of Jerusalem, you would have been shocked. I mean, you would have felt like you were standing in the middle of a giant garbage dump. This is Jerusalem? This is supposed to be the city of God? Why, it looks more like a landfill to me. You see, 85 years before this, because God's people become so wicked in their behavior, it was God himself who brought in the Babylonian army. It came in three different stages. Three different sieges, 605, 597, 586 B.C. First couple times he had that Babylonian army just carry off some prisoners. But then the third and final time when it became clear that God's people weren't going to listen, they weren't going to change their ways, that third and final time God had the Babylonian army come in and just burn the whole place down. Just destroy the temple, take the massive stones in the walls and shove them into the surrounding ravines so that when that Babylonian army finally left, Jerusalem was just this big pile trash. Well, 70 years later, God made it possible for his people to leave Babylon, come back to the promised land, and yet only a few returned. The vast majority of the Jews decided they liked life too much there in Babylon. They just wanted to stay. So only a remnant returns. And for the remnant who returns, that was kind of disappointing. Only a few are actually answering the call of God. And then they've got to take this long 700-mile journey back to the promised land, knowing that once they get there, everything is lying in ruins trying to put all the pieces back together again, that was going to be anything but easy. 
And yet the people are really energetic. And they start off this project with a lot of enthusiasm. And, and as Ezra tells us in the book of Ezra, it says they laid the foundation of the temple and they got the altar of burnt offering set up and everything just really moving forward until all of a sudden some of their neighbors, like the Samaritans and some others, they get all upset and they stir up a bunch of trouble and God's people get scared. And the whole project just stops. And now 20 years later, the year 520 B.C., nothing more has been done. I mean, they got the foundation of the temple laid, but other than that, the rest of the city still lies in ruins. It's still a big pile of trash. And if you were one of the Jews living there at that moment in time, what makes this whole situation so disheartening is because for years the Jewish people have been reading the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, two of God's prophets, and how God through those prophets had made these promises that once his people got back to the promised land, things were going to be glorious again. I mean, even greater than it was in the days of King Solomon. God was going to establish his kingdom, this magnificent kingdom, this kingdom of justice and purity. And God's Messiah, his anointed one, he was actually going to come and begin to rule in this place and rule not just in Israel. He was going to rule over the whole world. Man, that's something to get excited about. And yet, 20 years later, here's Zechariah and his fellow Jews and everything's still a mess. There's nothing glorious about this. So they begin to wonder. Has God forgotten his promises? You know, if you were standing in the streets of Jerusalem in the year 520 B.C., it'd be hard to believe that God still had a plan for his people. What it looked like was God had given up, that God had just disappeared from the scene. And then when you're in a discouraging situation like that, you know how your mind begins to play tricks? You begin to jump to all kinds of conclusions. You know, you'd be thinking to yourself as a Jew, hey, 85 years ago when God took us away from Jerusalem, he was right to do that because we were so wicked and we needed to be punished. But now, 85 years later, here we are trying hard to do a better job of listening to God and yet we recognize, yeah, we still stumble and fall. We still sin and fall short of the glory. So maybe, maybe the reason everything's still a mess, maybe the reason things are not going well is because of us. Because we're just not qualified. We're just not good enough to receive those promises from God. Like, life with God is based on how we perform, not based upon his goodness and grace. Well, that kind of thinking's all out of whack, and that's why God gives this vision to Zechariah. He wants his people to know that he's still here, and he still cares, and he still has a plan for their lives. And in this vision, in this picture, God wants to address this issue. How can a holy God, a God who's absolutely, perfectly holy, how can he bless people who are sinful? How can a holy God work with people who every day continue to stumble and fall? Well, God's going to answer that question. And that's an answer we need to hear, too. I mean, don't we struggle with this? Hey, David, how can you stand up here on the platform and tell others about God? You don't have your act together. I've watched you. I've known you for years. You've messed up so many times. What qualifies you to stand up here and preach to others about God when there's so many times when you don't do what God says yourself? You've heard those same accusations. Who are you to teach this class? Who are you to lead this group? Who are you to witness to others about following Jesus when there's so many times you don't follow Jesus yourself? I know you. You're anything but perfect. And when people say things like that to us, it stings. It hurts. And you know why? Because we know it's true. And we are anything but qualified to serve God. So you see... We need to see this picture just as much as the people of Zechariah's day. A picture of forgiveness. And what does it really mean to be forgiven by God? Let's take a look. Zechariah chapter 3. This picture starts off 
in a courtroom. God is the judge. Satan is the prosecuting attorney. And Joshua, the high priest, he's the man whose life is on trial, so watch what happens. Then he showed me, God showed Zechariah. God showed me a picture, a vision. And Zechariah says, in this picture I saw Joshua, the high priest. Now, get this, this is not Joshua that fought the battle of Jericho. That happened 900 years ago in a book called Joshua. This is a different Joshua. This Joshua is a priest. He's standing here in this heavenly courtroom. All kinds of accusations are now being made against him. And right now, everything is looking so bleak. So Zechariah says, I saw Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. This is not an angel like we think of angels. This is the Old Testament way of talking about Jesus. Here is Joshua. He is standing before Jesus himself. But while he's standing there, it says Satan is standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, here's the interesting thing. All the way through this chapter, you never hear Joshua say anything. He remains silent. Why? Because he knows everything Satan is saying about him is true. Lord, this man's not qualified to be a priest. You know that. I know that. You've seen all the things he's said and done. He has said things and done things and thought things that just displease you. He is unfit to serve you, God. And Satan just keeps piling on the guilt. And Joshua can't say one thing or do one thing to defend himself. There is no defense. He is a sinful man. But verse 2, God comes to his defense. It says, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, the one who's chosen Jerusalem, the one who's chosen Joshua. He's the one that rebukes you, Satan. Is not this man, I love this picture, is not this man Joshua? Here's God saying, is not this man like a burning stick snatched from the fire? How many times, think about this, how many times did Joshua and his fellow Jews, when they first got back to the city of Jerusalem, here's a city that had been burned to the ground. How many times when they first got back to these ruins did they pick up a stick like this? Here's a stick that's been scorched and charred. It's weak and so frail you could just easily snap it in two this piece of wood's worthless. You can't build anything with this. And that's exactly how Joshua and his fellow Jews feel about themselves. They look at the size of the challenge. We're supposed to rebuild all this, put this all back together again. And we, we know what kind of people we are. Weak, worthless, helpless. There's no way. But you're looking at the stick from Joshua's point of view. Look at the stick from God's point of view. It says, and he snatched, here's this stick burning in the fire, unable to remove itself from the danger. But God reaches in and he pulls it out of the fire. It's a picture of how God pulls his people out of exile. But in coming back from Babylon, they're damaged goods. The stick is scorched, charred, burned. It seems worthless. But now, that stick is in the hands of God. And when it's in God's hands, he can still do something special. You see, what we have here is not just a picture of forgiveness. It's a picture of how God redeems how God puts his people back on their feet again, how he makes your life useful again. How does that come about? Verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes, and this word filthy literally means to be covered with human waste. It means filthy in the grossest sense of the word. It is a picture of how repulsive and offensive our sin is in the eyes of the Lord. He's filthy. So here's Joshua dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before Jesus. And Jesus said to all those standing there in this heavenly courtroom, he says, take off the filthy clothes. What's happening? What is this image trying to communicate? Remove the filthy clothes. Well, Jesus tells Joshua, here's what's happening. See, I have taken away your sin. 
And get this, he not only removes the sin, it says, but I, I will put on you fine garments, literally royal garments on you. In other words, Joshua, you're being equipped by Jesus himself. You're being resourced. You are now with these new garments. You've got something clean to wear. It'll always be clean. You've got something clean to wear. You are, you are now being qualified to stand before the Lord and serve. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. Think of it like this. All the way through the Old Testament, you have this picture of God and his people. And it's almost like you're looking at oil and water. God is holy. We are wicked. God is righteous. We are sinful. God in all his perfection is like this pure, life-giving water. But we're the very opposite. We're like that oil. Our heart is dark. Our lives are filled with thoughts and activities that just smear and stain and just make a mess of things. How are you ever going to put these two, oil and water, how are you ever going to put these two things together? Well, you can't. They don't mix. I mean, have you ever seen the oil spill out on the ocean? The oil holds together. It floats on top of the water. You've got these two substances, the water and the oil. They're right next to each other, and yet they remain isolated from each other. They do not mix. It's a picture of God and his sinful people. In spite of his love and compassion, in spite of his grace and mercy, in spite of the fact that God really cares about us, yet he is holy. And being holy means he cannot compromise in any way with any kind of evil. And yet here we are, evil and sinful, just totally corrupt. How are you going to put the two together? Well, the answer is soap. Soap is the one agent that will allow the water to once again enter effectively interact with the oil. Soap is the agent that, that enables the water to clean and dissolve the oil. Jesus is the soap that God's going to use to save sinners. Through his death on the cross, God provided a way for us to be clean, to be cleansed of all that sin, to have all that corruption removed so that we can now get close to God again. We can now live in intimate union with him. We can now have access to God so now he can begin to just pour out all his benefits and blessings upon our lives, which is what Zechariah talks about. You get down to the very end of this chapter. He wants to explain this picture that we've been seeing. You know, how is it that God's going to remove those filthy clothes? I mean, how does this picture become reality? How does God remove the filthy clothes and give us something clean to wear? Well, down at the very end of verse 8, he says, I'm going to send somebody special. I will bring, God says, I will bring my servant, the branch. Those are two titles you hear all the way through the Old Testament. Two titles that are talking about the coming Messiah. And then at the very end of verse 9, he says, once he gets here, once the Messiah arrives, here's his main job, his main mission, and he will take away the sin of this land in a single day. It's a prophecy about the cross, that once and for all sacrifice where Jesus provided a way for us to be forgiven. But get this, in this picture that we're looking at here in Zechariah chapter 3, it's not what it really means to be forgiven. It's not just God taking away the filthy clothes. He's also giving us something new to wear. It's not just God lifting the burden off our shoulders. You're declared not guilty. The charges have been dropped. You're free to go. That's wonderful. But free to go back to life as it was? No. Now because of Jesus, you're free to move on to something much, much better. True story, a young lady named Lydia had grown up in this really strict religious environment and she resented every minute of it. So when she got old enough, she left home. Her home there in Minnesota moved down to New Orleans. And she began to indulge herself in every bit of revelry that city had to offer. I mean, every night a different party, every night a different sin, she tried it all. And at first it was fun, man, lots and lots of fun. 
But then she got tired of it because it wasn't giving her what she really wanted. And then one day she met a young man who seemed to offer something better, so they moved in together. And yet he couldn't hold a job, and soon it became Lydia's job to pick up all the beer bottles that he left scattered around the house every day. And she got tired of that too. So one day she took a month's rent, put it on top of the TV, and while her boyfriend was sleeping, she just walked out. Went back home, her hometown, the place she grew up, and she got a place of her own. Well, over the years up there in her hometown, the rumors had been flying around about Lydia and all the terrible things she'd done, and the whispers didn't stop when she got back. Every day when she'd come into town to come to the store to, to work, she could see all the people shaking their heads and showing their disgust. Even here in her hometown, she felt like a foreigner. And then one day she got this invitation. Her parents had been pleading and inviting, saying, please, come back home. We love you. We want you to be here. At least come home for Thanksgiving. And though Lydia was a little hesitant, she decided to accept. And when you know it, she got there, she got the same kind of treatment from her relatives. Cousins, uncles, aunts, all sitting around the table. She could see the look in their eyes. She knew what they were thinking. She could feel the disappointment and that sense of contempt. So when the meal was finally over and uh, they were getting ready to serve the dessert, Lydia just excused herself, said, hey, I need to walk around a bit. I'll be back after a while. She left the table, went into the other room, and as she was standing there in the living room, she noticed all the family pictures up there on the mantel. And then she saw that picture of herself. Senior year of high school, she was so pretty back then. Every hair in place. And Lydia thought to herself, boy, those days are long gone. But then she noticed there's a frame around that picture, and on the bottom of the frame, a, a, frame, a tiny label where her dad had typed something. It was the words, R. Lydia. It was almost like her dad was just defying the world and all the opinions of the people in town. I don't care what everybody else is saying about my daughter. Here's what I want you to know. This is our Lydia. In spite of all the pain that she had brought to her parents, in spite of all the trouble that they endured, in spite of all the heartaches they experienced because of her, yet here was her dad saying, I don't care what everybody else is saying about my daughter. I just want everybody to know this is still our Lydia. This is still our child. And we love her very much. And that love for her is never going to stop. Do you realize that if you were to look in the heart of God today, you would see a picture of yourself? And all around that picture is a frame, a frame called grace. In fact, it's the picture we see every Sunday morning when we participate in the Lord's Supper. Jesus on a cross, high up on a hill so everybody in the world can see and here is God making the announcement, I don't care what the world says about you. I want you to know what I think about you. I made you, and I love you. And no matter what kind of sin you committed, and no matter how many times you committed that sin, I still care about you. And with this cross, I have provided a way for you to be forgiven, a way to remove that sin and give you a new life to live. See, Zechariah chapter 3, when your life is on trial, every day Satan doing his best to put you down, and he is a master at this. He really knows how to pile on the guilt, and you feel worthless. You think, man, after what I've done, it's hopeless. It's God who comes to your defense. In fact, he's the only one who can defend you. He's the only one who can actually give you a way to be free. The question is, will you let him? Will you let God bring that freedom to your life today? Let's pray.